We're going. This is live. This is so exciting. Okay, it's not live. That's true. The red button is on. For us. Ainsley, take it away. I am Ainsley Braithwaite. I'm the second oldest of seven children, and I'm here to introduce our second guest on the Joyrific podcast. Today, we'll be joined by Christine Gardner. She has a bachelor's degree from Brigham Young University in Family and Science and a master's degree from Arizona State University in Marriage and Family Therapy. Professionally and personally, she has more than three decades of experience working with families, couples, parents, teachers, children, and individuals in school, clinical, and church settings. As a marriage and family therapist, Christine's passion is helping people manage their anxieties, fears, and frustrations. She helps them discover and unlock their own reserve of resilience and persevere through and even flourish in the face of life's inevitable adversities. Christine understands that life struggles are rarely created or resolved in isolation. That is why she approaches treatment by addressing concerns in the context of family and relationship systems, where connections or lack thereof play an important role in the search for healing and peace. She's been hiking mountains physically and emotionally, and today we'll discuss expectations and taking one step at a time on our journey. Welcome, Christine. Thank you. Christine, we are so excited to have you here with us today. Thanks for inviting me. All right, are you ready? I'm we hopefully, hopefully ready. We talked about this. We've talked a couple of times. We've talked a lot in our lives. So when I was pregnant with Ainsley, well, no, actually it was right after I had had Ainsley. They asked, the youth group asked me to go on a hike with them. And I was, I thought I was invincible. And of course it was like the week of the hike and I had done zero preparation and I ended up doing this like 18 mile hike. And during the hike, all the leaders had said, we're going to get all the girls to the top of the mountain. We're going to get everybody to the top of the mountain. And so that was like the mantra of the day was to get to the top of the mountain. Well, we did. And it was exciting. I was in the last group that was very underprepared and it took a lot to get us up to the top. And then I got to the top of the mountain and that's halfway I had nothing left to give. I don't know what, I thought that I was going to be done at the halfway mark. And going through that experience of then having to come back down the mountain was an extremely life-changing experience for me. And as I look back on my life, I reflect on, I did not think I could do it. (laughs) And I made it to the bottom and here we are. And I know that you're a hiker And there are so many life lessons that I learned on that hike. And I know that you have some amazing life lessons that you have learned over the years and how you've been helping people with that. Yeah, I think that's true. I think our our experiences hiking are very reflective of our life's challenges and experiences. And often we go into a challenge and think, okay, if I can just get to this point, then it will be okay. And, um, you know, interesting enough, actually outside of hiking, I remember when my, when I was growing up, my dad would often say that he was like, you know, we have to manage our expectations a little bit because we think once I reach this point, it's going to be different. And then we're shocked when it's really not that much different or it's different than we even anticipated it would be. And so through my practice, even through raising my kids, I've recognized 
that I don't actually really like the word expectations. It's almost like a swear word to me, just because it often sets us up for failure, (laughs) right? Like if we expect a certain outcome and if we don't get that, we're usually disappointed, sad, frustrated, angry, all the things. And so it's slowing, slowing life down enough to take it one step at a time. Like that hike that you did, regardless of what your head was saying, you had to take it one step at a time. Even coming down, it was one step. Now the next step, right? You could have given up at any point, but you didn't. You kept going. Well, and, often- and sometimes in life, like what would give, like I lay on the side of the hike, like lay on the side of the trail and die. Like, <laughs> I what mean, do you do? what's the alternative, right? Right. What is the alternative? And I was a leader. Like I'm supposed to be leading these people. It's interesting because our body actually can do more than we think it can. Our brain is the one that shuts down first before our body does. Once our body starts shutting down, then our brain has to kick in to keep us going because you know, anyone who's actually run a marathon, which I think is like this endurance piece that we're talking about, hiking's a little bit similar to, to running a marathon, but. Which you have done. Yeah, I've, I've run a couple of marathons and many half marathons, but there's a certain point that your body is done and it's ready to shut down. A lot of people call it hitting the wall, whatever it is, that the mental part has to kick in and say, okay what's the next little piece that I can get to? So often you pick something in the few, in the distance that's like, okay, if I can get to that point, then I'll reassess. We'll see where we're at. Uh, the first marathon I ran, it was actually in Utah and I didn't really want to run a marathon. I was a little bit like you in the hike. I wasn't super prepared. I mean, I was trying to be prepared, but I really just wanted to run a half marathon, not a full marathon, which is twice as much as a half marathon. <laughs> Significantly <laughs> larger. Yes. So, but anyway, for some reason, I'm like, okay, I'm signing up for this full marathon. And it was down um, Provo Canyon in Utah and it was raining almost the whole time. So anyway, so you're cold and you're trying to run and you're trying to, well, you're not staying dry. Sometimes you think you're trying to stay dry. Like you start the race with like a garbage bag and then you get rid of the garbage bag. Like that's going to help because you're sweating underneath the rain. So (laughs) it's all wet. But um, I remember just like being okay through the first half. And then I got to the halfway point where the the half marathon started. I'm like, but I wanted to be done right now. (laughs) Like I didn't want to do the whole thing (laughs) to be finished at this point. And then things started falling apart in my body, like my knee hurt when I was running. And then I stopped running for a little bit and my foot started hurting. I'm like, okay, which is what's going to get me faster to the end, running or walking, which one hurts less, which one hurts more? <laughs> you know, it's kind of this, this constant reassessment as I was going down. And then it was distraction. I only did this because it's really beautiful running down Provo Canyon, right? And the rain made it really um, vibrant and beautiful. So I was focusing on that till you get to a certain point. And I remember thinking as I stopped to go to the bathroom at one of the pit stops and, and I thought, I'm standing here thinking, can I just wear a sign that says I am a better runner than my time is showing right now? (laughs) Like, I just want a shirt that says that. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) I ended up 
just keep going. I'm like, I didn't have a phone. I didn't know what would happen. I couldn't stop because I didn't know what to do if I did stop. So I just kept going and I finished and I actually kept running through the finish line. And my husband, Dave, he was at the end and he's like, where are you going? I'm like, I think if I stop running, I'm going to just collapse and fall down. I won't (laughs) be able to move again. (laughs) So eventually I calmed down, but it was the whole, it's this whole mental process that we have, whether it's a hike, whether it's in life, raising our kids, working with other people, managing our own life experiences and expectations. It's just recognizing it's a process. It's not really always a destination because where, where is the destination and what is even halfway, (laughs) right? Like we have to reassess that on a continual basis. So I want a shirt that says I'm a better mother than what is showing right now. (laughs) (laughs) I think we need one for our teenagers. Like, I'm a better teenager than what is showing right now. Or even toddlers. Like sometimes yes. they're so cute and sometimes they are terrors. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's really interesting. I was just, I'm always constantly listening to books and different things. I was just listening to a a, a book this morning as I was weeding my yard, which is a mess down here in Arizona right now. It's Well, that's better than our like two feet of snow. Well, yes, <laughs> I will take that over two feet of snow. But, um, you know, this particular author, and she talks about just, and I know you're big into this, and Joe, Joey Riffick works with um, with our mind-body connection, right? And, and how our brains function and how how our reactions are based on what we're feeling in our body and how it's manifesting anyway. So it's just another, she quoted a lot of the same people that I know you're familiar with. Anyway, so a lot of the the same foundation that you based Joy Riffick on. And she just talked about this. When we can look at kids and their reaction and even ourselves and our own reaction to certain experiences. And when we're connected with our body, just like on a hike, you know, sometimes our brain has to be in charge and sometimes our body has to give us the clues or the insights into what's going on. That actually, if we can recognize with our kids that reaction part, that it's a clue, it's an insight in to what they need that they can't verbalize even. And even for ourselves, the same is true, right? Like we have these needs or these reactions that make sense if we can slow it down enough to recognize, okay, what is it that's going on? What's, what's going on for me right now? So I'm a, I'm a big proponent of self-compassion and gratitude. So in your, as you do this as a therapist, how do you help people recognize and see and learn and continue on? Yeah. Well, I start with always the brain and the body. I always start with our emotions and how our brain works and how it shows up in our body. So a lot of times I'll talk with clients and we'll talk about how um, sometimes we feel the emotion first, like I feel overwhelmed or I feel sad, but sometimes we feel it in our body. Like, oh, I feel tight in my shoulders. Oh, wow. I'm feeling a little tense or stressed right now. So it doesn't matter which one we attune to just as long as we start to notice that. But none of us like that. 
we don't we don't like feeling anything other than wonderful discomfort <laughs> yeah comfort at all and so i the the um the way i talk to people about it is i i use the the gas gauge on our car is kind of an example so when our car is we know we all know our car needs gas in order to function unless you have an electric car but it's a similar concept so there once you get really low in your gas gauge or your gas tank then a light comes on or fancy newer cars i only drive old cars but fancy newer cars might tell you how many miles you have left or you know a warning a verbal warning or something but mine's just a light and so i just talk about that light why do we have that light in our car we have that light because if that doesn't show up, then we run out of gas. So, and then we're in a worse place than we were <laughs> just with the light. And so if we can recognize our body and these emotions as these signals, like our gas gauge that, or that light that comes on that, hey, we need to stop. We need to slow down. We need to look at this. We need to kind of discover what's what the indicators are, what's happening. But we also go into that judgment, like, oh, I should feel something different. I should react a different way. Or why am I doing this? What's wrong with me? And that increases the discomfort versus processing through it. That's excellent. I love that. Mm -hmm. So when you are in that, I feel like I'm doing a terrible job. Like my expectations aren't being met. What, how do you go So that's the reaction part of our brain, right? If you're familiar with... I know you do a lot of Dan Siegel with your, with your stuff. You recognize his piece and that's his, that's our reaction part of our brain, right? We're not in our thinking part of our brain. We think we're thinking straight, um, but we're not. Anytime it's in that negative judgmental kind of really harsh place, we're reacting, right? That's our fight, flight, or freeze. And so we have to recognize that first. That's why I say, pay attention to your body, pay attention to your emotions. That tells you where you're at. So we got to slow it down enough, take a deep breath, whatever it is that we need to do to to take care of calming that reaction place so that we can get in a better thinking place. That's the first clue. That's that light that's coming on. Hey, this is happening. So, of course, during those moments, we're going to have these negative thought processes, these negative judgmental, really um, discouraging pieces that just keep perpetuating, right? It's kind of this endless cycle. Um, I often share with my clients uh, an experience I had a few years ago. So I was getting my milk jug out of my refrigerator and I dropped it and it dropped on my kitchen floor, which is tile or was tile at the time. And it, it split open the bottom and the milk started going everywhere. And I said, this was a really good example because I was starting to really be aware of what thoughts were going through my head. And, um, thoughts that I always bring up were the first one was, I'm so stupid. I can't do anything right. This always happens to me. And this is going to ruin my day plus lots more. Right. So if I slow myself down and I look at the, if I look at those thoughts, even just in a slower way, okay. The first one, I'm so stupid. What do you think? Judgmental, not judgmental, true or false. Right. (laughs) My, my I, I know that you're not stupid. Right. Well, and even when I'm feeling right now, I'm pretty confident that my intelligence is not dependent on whether I can hold a milk jug or not. <laughs> right. Right. Like I know that logically, 
But in the moment, I believe it. It feels really true. It feels like I am stupid and I can't do anything right. All of those things. And so they just perpetuate. So my body is telling me I start to feel yucky or I'm upset or I'm frustrated. So if I can pay attention to that warning sign, then I can actually do something about it. But if I, if I don't, then I usually perpetuate it. Right. And then my day goes on. I still have to clean up the milk regardless of how I feel, but my day goes on. I may walk down the hall and trip on a pair of shoes. And then I'm like, see, I can't even walk down the hall. I I can't even walk straight. I'm so uncoordinated and whatever. And just all day long, I'm finding those pieces of my life that support that negative view or that negative aspect. So it's really hard to pull out of that. But anytime I can recognize that that's where I'm getting, I can start to see it a little different. I can recognize, okay, look, I am not stupid just because I tripped over a pair of shoes or I dropped my milk jug, right? Those were accidents, maybe even mistakes, but certainly not determining how intelligent I am. Right. And then we go into that black or white thinking like I can't do anything right. And this always happens to me, which also send off those signals and they're all judgmental. So my body and my emotions are trying to warn me there's something not good happening. here. Yeah. Well, and I love the center of the joyrific chart is be kind. And it's not just to others. It's to you and to your heart and to your brain and to help to I really hone that in, whether it's a toddler or a teenager or a mother or a grandma. So, and that's the self-compassion piece because that's the antidote. It's the antidote to all of these negative thought processes, or it's the antidote to slowing our perspective down, right? It's just a light on our gas gauge in our, in our car. Like I can yell at my car for running out of gas and I can be super mad at that light showing up it's really just trying to help me. It's trying to tell me I need to slow down, look at something different, be kind to myself, (laughs) right? Or give myself a little bit of that self-compassion. Let me process through my feelings. So self-compassion looks lots of different ways. When I talk to my clients about it, I I like there's a hundred million ways to practice self-compassion. What you have to do is figure out how it works best for you. And when you can figure out what resonates with you the most, then you believe yourself, right? You believe those more positive messages, or you can recognize when the judgment shows up and you're like, yeah, that's, that's not really true. That's might how that might be how I feel right now. But so let's, let's bring it back to expectations, right? So if you are expecting a certain outcome and it doesn't happen We normally go into that judgment. Either we blame ourselves or we blame someone else, you know, or the circumstances, whatever it is. But if I can just recognize, okay, blaming is not going to help in any shape or form. So what do I want to do? I want to slow it down and recognize, okay, maybe I need to just reevaluate what I'm hoping or needing or wanting from this situation. And when we can do that, then we can manage our emotions a lot differently. Our emotions are there to help us and show us their guidelines. That's awesome. I want you to take this line of thinking and help parents who have maybe teenagers or toddlers that are doing something that 
my wise parenting knows that that is not the best path or thing that they should be doing and helping them to realign their ex- I, I like I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say but I know exactly what you're saying cuz I do this all the time. I work with parents all the time. And um you know, you mentioned in I, I really do take a systemic perspective like we are not alone in this. Oftentimes as parents as we raise our kids, when our kids are little, they need us a lot. They need a lot of guidance, they need a lot of hand-holding, they need a lot of hey, we're keeping you safe. It's all about safety. So when our kids, as they grow, you know, that's often where our warning system is set off. It's our fight, flight, or freeze, right? Like that stress or or, um, fear response is, I am so worried that my kids are going to do something that is either going to be hurtful for them or hurtful for someone else, or maybe even hurtful for me. And if we can recognize, okay, what they're doing is setting off my warning system. It's not even necessarily about them. Um, One of the things that we know with kids and regulating their emotions is they can't regulate unless we regulate. We have to co-regulate with them. And if we start with us and learn how to regulate our emotions, it's a lot easier to regulate with them. So, you know, that's another reason I I, I really like the Joyrific. Um chart that you use, and I've used it a lot in my my practice as well, um, is that it slows us down. We we help them regulate because we have something tangible to not only regulate, help them regulate, but to regulate ourselves. Okay, what are you feeling? What's going on? Can you show me what what is it? What does it look like for you? Right. And then that gives us the time and the space to regulate too. But going back to parenting, it, it is expectations. You know, whether we've told you a hundred times or you're not doing something that's keeping you safe. Um, there's that aspect. There's also the aspect of, look, I've taught you differently. Why are you doing that? <laughs> right? Like, like, I know better, but part of that is that transition from our making all their decisions for them to letting them make their own decisions. So, I always tell people I've read probably 500 different parenting books per child. I have five of them. So what does that make? 25,000? <laughs> I don't know. Not really that many, but <laughs> they're all different. Every child is different. And and so you glean things from different pieces. Um, one of the things I learned through Love and Logic Parenting is that it's always cheaper at the current price. And I think that's that's a really good guideline to think about. So what that means is let your kids fail right now because they're failing or choosing something different than you would hope for is going to teach them more than you holding them to whatever your standard is or expectation. And um, they're going to learn whatever it is they need to know better than us telling them. Because if they're dysregulated and we're trying to give them information, they're not in their thinking part of their brain. They can't hear it. They can't process it. It means nothing. So we think we're doing the right thing, but they, they're they not, <laughs> nothing's getting through. Oh, I love that. And let's talk about, let's just take it with homework, like homework from kindergarten up into high school. And then you've had kids that have graduated from college. Like, give us an example with homework. Okay, 
So, and I have lots of experience with this. So I have one of my kids has dyslexia, um, not, not diagnosed, but we know pretty much that that's the challenge that they have. And um, there was a time when they were young and, and oftentimes we just have to learn by hard experience what's helpful and what's not helpful. And um, so this particular child was not doing well, obviously with reading at school, very intelligent, could really verbally share a lot of things, but um, was struggling. And it was, I took on the responsibility, right? Like I am going to help this child succeed. I, I think I know what this child needs. And so I pulled them out of school and started homeschooling and doing all the things. And I recognized that, okay, this child actually learns differently than most kids, but that doesn't mean it's bad or good. It just means it's different. So how do I build on that? And once I could let go of what my expectations looked like, what I thought homework needed to look like, what I thought school needed to look like, what I thought her future needed to look like, what I thought my future in regards to their future needed to look like, it changed and it all came down to the relationship. So that's a big piece for me is if I can remember the relationship is the most important that changes how I look at things, changes how I respond. It changes how I respond to when they're dysregulated or reacting. Um, it lets me to let go of the responsibility and lets them own their own responsibility because that's the only way we grow, right? We grow when we, when we take it on. So that goes back to it's always cheaper at the current price, right? If my first grader doesn't do their homework, well, there's going to be some natural consequences at school. And if I get frustrated about it, guess who's owning the homework? Me. So they don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Mom's got that. She's worried about it. I don't have to carry that. I, I always say to my kids, like, oh, I've, I've already done my third grade homework. Like, it's your turn to do it. I don't need to do it. Yeah, <laughs> right. But we own that as parents a lot of times because we want our kids to be successful. And so that's right. how we justify it, right? Right. Oh, well, if you don't do your homework, that, and I don't think we think about it, but we do, if we really are honest with ourselves, it's a reflection on us. And if we can let go of that piece, right? Like I heard a, a talk years and years ago, um, and and I have searched and searched for it and I can't find it. So I can't even reference it for you. But but the particular gentleman talked about reminding ourselves that our kids are not our merit badges. You know, so that's a reference to Boy Scouting, right? It's like our kids are not our merit badge. What does that mean? How do I how does that change how I look at what they do, what they don't do, how I perceive it, how I know how I don't perceive it? You know, we live in a world that we want everyone to succeed to a certain standard, but we're not even sure what that standard is, but it's just better than whatever is easy. I, I don't even know. I mean, it's really frustrating. And a lot of times when I'm working with clients, I say there's this great fallacy in the world that um, that we as parents often get caught in and with our kids get caught in. Um, the fallacy is if we don't see our mistakes, then we can't fix them. Right. So we're constantly like, okay, 
how do we get better at this? How do we improve? How do we make this better? But we're always seeing what we didn't do right. And that takes us down a rabbit hole of shame, you know, judgment, all of those things. And we feel like it's helpful, but it's really not emotionally helpful. And so if we can switch it around and always and try and focus on what we're doing right as a parent, what our kids are doing right, that changes things. That changes things because it motivates us actually to do more right. I I always present it in a job situation, right? Like if you have a boss that's constantly criticizing you or being frustrated with how you're performing at work, most of us just quit those jobs. We don't really like them. So we recognize it in that perspective, but we do it to ourselves all the time and we do it to those that we love without hoping that we're encouraging them to meet some sort of expectation or be successful. But the more we can recognize what they're doing right or how they're doing it or ask those kinds of questions, um, then we tend to look for ways to help get more of that, get the acknowledgement. You know, um, Carol um, Dwick, I think is her name, she did a study and she just talked about, you know, they gave puzzles to these first graders and are you familiar with uh-huh. this one? Yeah. Yeah. Where the, they were unsolvable puzzles. Well, they gave them puzzles that they could solve first. And, and the way that they shared with them, the success made all the difference when they had these unsolvable problems, right? Like how long they stuck with it and what they did. And so it's the difference between this acknowledgement, Hey, you're amazing versus you worked really hard. Okay. So worked really hard means Sometimes we fail and sometimes we get it right. But if you're always just praising the all of the, um, you know, that they are just not their effort, but just who they are, then we tend to give up quicker. But if we can see ways that help us move forward, and that's the same with our kids, right? Like if that's that goes back to it's always cheaper at the current price. If they fail now, they're going to learn more. But we highlight what they did right. We highlight that they stuck with it. Or we highlight that, wow, you know, that was really hard. I love with my kids, something that I've learned is this. And I guess I've learned it mostly because my mom has helped me learn it. But the safety net, and it's kind of, it's at at this current price. The safety net of elementary school and helping them to learn that independence there is that's what it is, is there's a safety net for that. So helping the child advocate for themselves, helping them go and talk to their own teacher, writing a letter, like whatever it is that they need there. So then they have those skills when they go to high school or when they're ready to get those grades that actually matter and will go on a transcript or will help with scholarships or anything like that, which I'm not there yet. I'm not in that phase yet. We're still surviving. Well, even at that point, you know, I think we have these expectations too that say, okay, if they can be learn everything before they get in high school, then they're going to be successful. Well, what if they don't? Right? Can we still there's there's still opportunities? I mean, look at us. I'm in my fifties. I'm still learning things. Right. right? Yeah. So why do we expect our kids to have it all figured out by the time they are graduating from high school? So there's never a time that's not a not a learning opportunity. So 
I think that's if we can, and it, and that's why it goes back to the relationship. If I can recognize my relationships, the most important, whether it's a safety in my relationship, so I can do those things, which I think is, I, I think that's the principle that you and your mom are teaching your kids, right? Is you're safe to try these things and figure them out because I'm here. And even if it's scary, I'm still here and you're safe. So that, you know, the attachment theory is when we have um, one safe attachment figure, then we can go and explore and we can go and even make mistakes. And it's okay because we know we have a safe place to go back to. So whether it's a safety net, you know, to get ourselves out there or not, there's always this opportunity to continue to look, to learn and to grow and progress. And, um, you know, I'll have parents come to me and they're like, okay, my child is in high school and, you know, they are so smart and they are just not meeting their potential. I just don't know what to do. I, I don't know how to handle that. I don't know, you know, and I get frustrated with them and then they don't, aren't motivated to do anything. And, you know, and I hear from the kids too, because I get both and I'll hear the, the teenagers go, my parents just don't understand, right? They're just always writing me. They can't see that I'm putting in this effort. And it's almost like they're not speaking the same language, right? They want the same thing, but they're speaking opposite languages, which are actually pushing them apart. So I work with parents first and I, 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 I work with parents and just say, okay, what's most important about the relationship? What do you want from your child? Do you want them to be able to come and talk to you? Do you want them to be able to share their experiences with you? If all you're talking about is homework and college and the next step and, you know, then you're, we're, we're creating distress for our kids. And so that safety net always needs to be there. I, I see a lot of teenagers that come in with anxiety and, um, you know, panic attacks because they have so much pressure either internally or externally or both that said it has to look a certain way that they hardly can function anymore. So when you have a child that's in that situation, that's like hardly functioning anymore, mm-hmm. what... I mean, other than coming into your office, because that's obviously the best answer. But what are some coping skills that a parent or that child could do? So, um, yeah, all of those things that we've already talked about, it's managing our expectations, managing what are we wanting out of the situation? Can we be that safe place for them? Can we be that? Can we recognize what what they're experiencing, not only emotionally, but physiologically, that where we can help soothe, right? Where we can help them. We have to help them co-regulate until they can regulate themselves. So there's a lot of the same things that apply to us, like that gas gauge, right? Like recognizing our body and our emotions. That's the biggest thing that I teach both parents and kids and um, teenagers all. Like, can we notice when our body is reacting that way? What do we do? How do we figure out a way to to find to be kind for you know if we're using the joyrific stuff? Um, how do I come back into that be kind place? A lot of it, I remember having a conversation, and and th- you know this is years of experience, and like I said, thousands of parenting books and all sorts of things. But um, if I can extrapolate anything from all of that, it's I have to be regulated, 
and I have to recognize I want a relationship and then, then we can do something. And when I can regulate, I actually model for my child how to help them regulate. So that's a huge tool right there is helping them see that I know how to regulate myself and then I can work with them and pointing out some of those pieces that, um, you know, soothing when they do get dysregulated. But if they, if I can't do that, if I don't have a relationship with them, then I have zero influence. So if you're familiar with Stephen R. Covey, he talks about the circle of influence and the circle of control. And that's what I talk with parents a lot about too, is that we often feel like we are not transitioning to the influence. We just still want to control everything. And if we can recognize that for ourselves, look, what am I trying to control? What can I let go? What do what responsibility can I give to them? But if we have the relationship, guess where I have the influence? My teenager is not going to talk to me if all they feel like is I do is I take away their phone and I punish them for not getting good grades. And, you know, I have all these really, um, whether they're, you know, like I said, I don't really like the word expectations because it just kind of creates this negative space. But you know, they feel whatever our expectations are, whether we verbalize them or not verbalize them. And if I don't have a relationship where we can manage that, then I have zero influence. And so I tend to go back to the control. What can I control? Oh, I can control their phone. So I'm going to take away their phone or whatever it is. But if I have a relationship with my child, then we have a dialogue, right? It's their responsibility. Okay. What do we want to do with this? We have a much more, we have much more ability to influence when we have a relationship. So with terrific, I do QT time. Ainsley, I want you mm-hmm. to, Ainsley, I want you to tell us about QT time. Okay. Um, QT time stands for quality time, time, or <laughs> <laughs> so traditionally the first draft of QT time meant quality time, but then you had the, the time at the end, so it's quality time time, but then we changed it to quality together time, so it actually makes sense. Um, but QT time, that is uh, every kid at the end of the day, like in the bedtime routine, will get however old they are, like I'm 15, 16 now, so I get 16 minutes, and I get to spend that with mom or dad depending on which one's available. And I get to talk about my day. I can choose an activity to do. So like my little brother, Finn, who is seven, he the other day did QT time with my dad and they did Legos for seven minutes and built a Star Wars Lego set. Um, Adelaide, she is trying to lose her teeth. And so she's been reading a lot for her QT time. Astrid and I sometimes do QT time together and I'll like paint her nails or we'll play a card game. And it's really just one-on-one time where we focus on uh, the child's needs. And um, since my love language is quality time, these like QT time moments are really, really important to me, especially growing up where like in a household of seven, you feel like not all the time you get one-on-one quality time with mom and dad. Um, And so putting this specific time, like putting it apart uh, was very, very crucial to me. And building our relationship. And building our relationship, yes. And kids don't interrupt when it's QT time. Like, it's sacred time. You put your phones away. 
we, unless we're like shopping for QT time on Amazon on our phones, but like in no contact with the outside world, it is a hundred percent focus. And that's one thing that we've done with the Joyrific chart with our kids over the last 13 years. And I think that relationship, I mean, coming from Ainsley, who's 16, we have a fairly excellent relationship. And it probably stems from my childhood. I had a very difficult relationship with my mom. We were missing a lot of expectations, attention, sleep patterns, physical needs, physical function, nutrition. All of those were not ideal. And so we've taken that experience and built it into the Joyrific chart with QT time. And I think it goes right along with all the things you're saying, Christine. It totally does. In fact, I love that, right? Like I love on the Joyrific chart, the the sign that, you know, watch out for these. And it's all of those things, right? There are body and our emotions that are all of those warning signs. When you're hungry, our body gives off a warning sign. When we're tired, our body gives off a warning sign, right? Like even unmet expectations or, um, you know, need for attention, it's, there's a warning sign. So what you're doing is something intentional. You're creating the relationship so that when something hard happens, we're not trying to backtrack, right? We've already, you know, John Gottman, he's a, he's a marriage that, um, researcher and he talks about an emotional bank account different therapists will use lots of different things you're we're building that emotional connection so that when things are a little bit more challenging or difficult we can rely on what we've created and built and i, I work a lot on we, we choose intentionally to let go of things that are not helpful for us and to hold on to things that are building and strengthen and hold us together and build that relationship. So whether, you know, whatever it looks like for you and your family, in fact, a lot of times I will tell clients, I'm like, it has to resonate with you. It has to feel like it works. One of the examples I use in, um, is gratitude journals. I don't, you know, I'm sure you've heard of gratitude journals and are familiar with those and they're fantastic. And I recognized for me that gratitude journals work for about five days. <laughs> and and there was the time in my life I'm like, oh, these gratitude journals are supposed to help me feel better and feel better about myself and focus and refocus. And and then, like I said, I would forget about after about five days. And then I recognized I'm like, look, I feel better after five days. So it's it's doing what it's doing. But if I feel like I have to perpetuate a gratitude journal for a long time, it feels overwhelming. Then it becomes a task I don't want to do anymore. And then it becomes detrimental. So if we can, that's the flexibility, right? Recognizing when things, and my body would tell me that, like, oh, I got to do my gratitude journal. No, I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) It's not helping. It's counterproductive, right? So then when I recognize, look, I can do a gratitude journal for about five days and then I feel better and I do something different. And then when I feel like, oh, I need that again, then I pull it out. But I don't spend my time judging myself for doing that or expecting me to, that's how I'm going to find peace or joy or happiness is by doing this gratitude journal. So it's that flexibility. I love that. I think also with QT time, it is extremely flexible when you have a large family. Absolutely. And I, there are times where I am like, I, I, my bucket is empty. I can't do QT time. Like, I love that you need me and I love that you want me, but you're going to need to do it with a sibling. You're going to need to do it with Garth, you're going to need to do it. Call grandma, like something. I know that you need it, 
but I can't give it right now. So, and that's another way of modeling that we are human, right? And, and we can sense the importance of that, but also recognize that it's not just, we're not expecting, like your kids learn to not expect that you are always available and always, this is always going to be helpful, but they recognize that you're honest enough that says, let's figure out a different way to do this. Let's find an alternative and, and still understand that this is valuable and important. And then I go and go to bed. Like, then I also take care of myself. I don't then do other things that are going to continue to drain me. Right. So that's the self-compassion piece too, right? It's the modeling and it's the self-compassion because if I, if I have the expectation that I have to be there for QT time every time, right? Then I start to judge myself when I'm not, look, I'm exhausted. I don't think I can show up. Then I get frustrated, right? My body and my emotions are telling me, Hey, this is not working. I got to do something different. So you're, you're teaching your kids self-compassion when you're like, look, I just don't have the bandwidth for this tonight. And I know it's important and it really is. And I want to be there, but right now I have to, to do what helps me. So they learn lots of different things, right? It's on so many levels. Yeah. And, and now that we've done this so often, I mean, it's been 13 years of QT time. My kids yeah. will be able, will be in some odd scenario. Like I remember one time it was at tennis lessons and we were waiting our turn and Gracie leaned over to me and said, thanks for the, doing this QT time with me, which I didn't even recognize that I was doing QT time with her, but it was her and I were there alone and we were talking about things. And she just said, like, it just really, I just really needed this today. I thought, oh my goodness, like I have taught them this fills their bucket and it doesn't have to be at night. You've taught them to recognize what it feels like to feel connected, right? These are, you know, you've given them a this guideline, but you've let go of the expectation it has to look a certain way, right? We've experimented enough that this is the guideline, but it can look a lot of different ways. I love it. Christine, this has been such a pleasure talking with you. Oh my goodness. I've loved it. Okay. We have enough time for one more thing. So if you have something that you wanted to say, or if not, I'll ask you a question and you can go from there. Yeah. Go ahead and ask me a question. I always have a lot to say, but (laughs) I don't know what direction you want to go. So this is, uh, I have no direction. I just want to hear one (laughs) last nugget of goodness from you. So I want you to reflect back on your, on you. I'm, you have grandkids and children now, but Ainsley is my second child. And so this hike that I went on is one of the lessons that I learned reflecting back on when I just had two children. Is there a lesson that you've learned reflecting back and how it's gotten to where you are now here today? Yeah. So kind of our theme today is the expectation piece, right? So I find when I can recognize what my expectations are, because they are often hidden, if I can recognize what they are and evaluate them and either let them go or or shift my focus or change my focus, that makes a big difference. You know, as you raise your kids, as you play with your grandkids, as you deal with like every aspect is when I feel something in my body, I just, I ask myself those questions now. I'm like, hey, what's going on? Am I expecting something different than I'm experiencing? Okay, 
is there something I can do to change my expectation or manage that? Or can I, can I understand that there, maybe there's something I need, I need a break or I need to move away. But I mean, it's a constant learning process. That's the whole thing. And that's the other pieces. It's not, it, like I said in the beginning, and we talk about this all the time, it's not a destination, it's a journey. And what's the next step? And if I look at it that way, like I'm a really big on being present, right? Like, let's just enjoy this moment. I don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. I don't, I can, I can kind of plan and prepare a little bit for it. But also I can't enjoy today if I'm always thinking about, okay, what's the next step? So that's usually where, okay, let me just slow it down. Let me just be present. And that shifts how I feel and how I look at things. One step at a time, I guess. Totally. Totally. That's awesome. Well, all right. I I don't know how we actually end this. Like I could just go on for days. (laughs) I think you have like some ending music. Oh, yeah. Oh, cue the music. Cue the music. (laughs) Christine, I so appreciate you taking the time to come and talk with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's always fun to chat with you. I get closer and closer to your age every day. Well, I was just thinking that I'm like, how old am I? And okay, I'm 14 years older than you. I think it's always been 14 years. Well, I'm pretty sure it has. (laughs) I feel like for you and for me, I think for our family, even our moms, it's just always this constant learning, right? Like there's, we're just, what's next? What's the next thing I can learn? What's, yes? how how can I apply that? How do I fit that in with what I'm doing? Yeah, well, and I... I guess we probably could say that our moms are sisters. Your mom is 82? 84, so 80, 85. 85, and they are going on a 200-mile bike ride this summer, <laughs> which is awesome. I mean, they will be on e-bikes. So. I know, I was going to say, we do have to qualify that a little bit. But at the same time, my, what my husband always says is how amazing that they have this ability to still enjoy life at this age when they can you know still participate in the outdoors and enjoy and whatever okay so I do have to say that my mom is older than your your mom oh no I guess I'm two years older than the distance between my mom and your mom oh oh us they're 12 years old oh yeah they're 12 years apart and we're 14 years apart all right when you're 84 yeah, let's go. We'll go let's on a bike it. ride together. Okay. <laughs> we'll do the same one that they're doing. Yeah, again. yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> we'll do it. Okay. Let's do something for that, though. Okay, <laughs> that's a good idea. I Well, they've done a whole bunch of triathlons together, too. Yeah, yes, that's true. Yeah, I, I will say they are like the epitome of I can do hard things. And I don't think they look at them as hard things. I think they look at them as, is it possible? Sure. Yeah, I can do that.